welcome to the Free Marketeers podcast in association with the Economics Club. And I'd like to warmly welcome you to our podcast on command versus free market economies. I would also like to thank all of our audience for giving us a very strong support over the past month and giving us a lot of support on our recent Instagram page. going to discuss the wealth of nations and the communist manifesto i'm in an immensely privileged position here to have both of these amazing and, and, and you know revolutionary books in front of me uh, so without much further ado let's open the wealth of nations so the wealth of nations created by none other than the adam smith in 1776 very much gave way to the economics of today very much gave way to what we view today as as wealth being not measured by our hoard and store of precious metals but rather how much we produce i'd say that the i'd say that the power of the wealth of nations is very much due to the fact that it was a rebirth not just of economics but of the way that we viewed wealth as a whole um, in many ways, it drifted away from, you know, the, the more sort of 16th century, 15th century views of wealth as a as a very sort of mercantilistic idea and in many ways gave way to the free market, the more unfettered and, and liberal way of approaching the economy that we hold today. Um, and it's clear to see that there is an element of benevolence that tints every page in the wealth of nations. There's, there's an idea that despite you know, greed almost being analogous and synonymous in a certain extent to the free market, to unfettered capitalism, that there's potential there. There's potential with our, you know, most fundamental fallibility of selfishness to opt for the greater good. I think personally, with the Industrial Revolution, which took place after the Welfare Nations, that, you know, the people at the top of society did benefit more, but I think the poor also did benefit. The way mm -hmm. I would personally see it is I would see everyone benefiting in some way but i think personally the people at the top of society benefited more um due to the writings of other nations and the ideas put forward so i think adam smith definitely designed this framework to take advantage of human nature because uh i'm i think we can all agree that most of us have an innate desire for growth and expansion which more often than not manifests itself as greed in most people so Without greed, capitalism as a system or the free market system would not work as effectively as it does today because it is this desire for growth that makes people set up a new business or improve their business or compete with each other. It's this desire for growth and expansion that allows economic growth and more production and essentially just makes capitalism work as an economic system. Completely agreed. Completely agreed. I think that it's in many ways a case of the poor being better off in a certain sense as, as opposed to systems that we will go on to uh, that we will go on to meet now with with the communist manifesto are the poor better in a free market system where there is that potential to express this this very in, innate human desire to expand uh, or is it or, or does it backfire onto them does it give rise to inequality uh, does it give rise to uh, restriction and authority again without much further ado let me open up the communist manifesto written by none other than the eccentric madman Karl Marx and his accomplice Friedrich Engels the communist manifesto is in many ways and the epitome of what authoritarian regimes whether that be the Khmer Rouge or whether that be Mao's China represent as the figurehead uh, of their both their equity and equality reading this book you you can sympathize almost uh, with with Karl Marx's eccentricity here you know it starts off with a specter is haunting Europe the specter of communism it was radical and I think that radicality is at the heart of what it was I think that you can in many ways sort of capture 
Marx's very unique way of expression uh, throughout this book. Uh, and, and just a few little quotes from him, I think, capture his voice perfectly. I think at one point he, he, ex he, ex he exclaims in anger, abolition of the family, even the most radical flare-up, uh, this infamous proposal of the communists. And your education, is that not also social and determined by social conditions under which you educate by the intervention, direct or indirect, of society? So he's in many ways overturning Adam Smith's work. And, he's, and, and, and with that, it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful ground of refutation. And I think that he most solemnly ended off uh, with, with his sort of final line here. You know, let the ruling classes tremble at the communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have the world to win. And I think that in many ways relates to your previous point there, Ralph, doesn't it? In, in, in that, in many ways, the root and cause of inequality, the root and cause of bifurcation of both wealth and fortune is the fact that people are able to exploit their greed to such an extent where it's leading the detriment to others. And I think that the heart of libertarian economy is that fact that there needs to be parameters set in place. How far can one express their innate human desire? How far can one do that without impinging the right of others to do so themselves? Yeah, I think I would like to continue on Marx, actually. Um, I personally find him probably, I find him a very interesting economist. I think because the job of an economist is to propose ideas to increase economic welfare. And I think, to be quite honest, although I don't, you know, 100% agree with Marx or even agree with him to a high extent, I believe out of all the econ economists I've looked into, he is definitely putting out that at the forefront of his work, how he wants to emphasize economic welfare. And if you read his texts, like, you know, he talks a lot about education. He talks a lot about the freedom of the individual, surprisingly. Like, I know one thing he said was, like, someone should be allowed to, you know, bake in the morning, then go fishing in the afternoon and be able to do what they want. And I think mm. it is quite unfortunate to an extent how, you know, a lot of these authoritarian regimes, they put him as his figurehead when in reality it's these, it's these dictators who are really the figureheads and they put their own ideas forward. And that causes authoritarianism where I think, you know, I think Marx, he has been quite misunderstood uh, in some ways. And I think, you know, I would like to see in the next few years some kind of um, proper communist country that actually is communist as opposed to this authoritarian distortion of it. And I would love to see that in the future at some point. Adding on to your point, Ralph, throughout history, I mean, we've never actually seen pure communism. It's always been socialism that kind of leans towards the communist aspect. Um, Marx has always said that communism should be Im implemented once capitalism has reached its peak, which I don't think it has done as of yet, much less, you know, a few years into the past when the USSR was in power. So I don't think we're going to see a pure communistic nation anytime soon and even if we did it wouldn't be the you know the most powerful or any kind of significant nation that's really good are we ready to go on to friedrich hayek and ludwig von mises i've recently read the road to serfdom and i'm gonna be honest i think it was one of those books that I don't think has aged massively well as Hayek would have hoped when at the time of writing. So for those who don't know, Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom uh, so just before the end of World War II. And the idea of the book is effectively that any form of state intervention causes totalitarianism. And obviously he's basing that upon the Soviet Union. So, for example, Joseph Stalin's rule and also the Nazis as well. So Adolf Hitler. And I think the reason it hasn't particularly aged well is, I would say, two arguments. First of all, you look at authoritarian regimes, and 
although a good chunk of them claim to be communists, I think there's also been a few that have been very right-wing. Like, you look at Augusto Pinochet, which was the first true neoliberal exper experiment. You know, he threw people off helicopters for the sake of capitalism. And then I would say the other thing that Hayek, you know, didn't consider was the fact that mixed economies arose. So a mixed economy is one that effectively a lot of European countries now have or used to have. So in the UK, we were very mixed uh, from the 40s to uh, the end of the 70s, really. Uh, so up until at the end of uh, up until stagflation, we were very mixed. As in, you know, we had a mix of public and private uh, sector goods and to an extent, you know, like in the UK, we didn't enter any form of totalitarian regime and we never have due to being a mixed economy uh, back then. So I think that hasn't aged particularly well, but I think he does present some key ideas where I think, you know, to an extent, if you do increase the size of government, it will cause totalitarianism to an extent. Uh, I think that in many ways, just relating to your point there, uh, Ralph, regarding how how the road to serfdom has, has aged over the times. I think that I think that it was a, it was a very peculiar one given given the context of the road to serfdom being written, I, I believe, in 1944, uh, near the end of World War II. And I think that just acknowledging that the context of that environment, you know, World War II had a sense of togetherness. And I think that, you know, that there was almost a homogeneity. We hear stories of, uh, you know, uh, earls and dukes fighting alongside common men on the battlefield. And I think that given that, almost that homogeneity that World War II had, you know, perhaps the removal of the class system that perhaps existed, uh, you know, in the Edwardian era, which had almost preceded uh, both world wars. I think that perhaps that may have been a reason why Hayek almost had this lack of approach or lack of sensitivity to um, hierarchy, to oligarchy, because I think that fundamentally, given that context, given the or given the sentimental nature uh, of, of, of what the current events were of that day, I think that, you know, potentially hierarchy wasn't too much of a consideration in that day and age. Before we go on to Schumpeter, I would like to mention Ludwig von Mises. So, like Hayek, he was a member of the Austrian school. And the book I'm going to be talking about is The Economic Calculation in a Socialist Commonwealth. I've read a bit of this book recently, and the way it's written is basically, you know, a command economy can never theoretically work because we are all individuals. So you look at the demand, and Ludwig von Mises has an infamous quote that the people at the top of the command economy, aka the planners, are in quotation marks groping in the dark, where effectively they are simply getting demand. Like they will look at, for example, the demand of shoes, but then they won't consider the demand for, let's say, trainers or boots or wellies or any of those shoes. And another thing that is considered with demand is the fact that at one time they'll guess demand, let's say, for wheat, but then in the future, maybe way higher, which will lead to effectively famine. And then with regards to supply, the reason he said it didn't work was the fact that, you know, uh, institutions in a uh, command economy, you know, they ultimately act in their own self-interest, for example. So there are two things he put forward. The first one was effectively that the goods produced won't match what consumers want, which obviously relates to demand. But, for example, in Soviet Union, um, they, had, they had these weight quotas for, I think, construction bolts. And so what happened was to meet the weight quotas, all these construction companies would produce these really oversized bolts that wouldn't work, but simply because they're easier to produce. As, as a result, construction was not that great. And another thing that happened was that, like, you know, they would bypass safety quotas. So, for example, chandeliers were produced in the Soviet Union, and they made them really heavy to meet weight quotas, and they'd fall on people, and people actually died because of it. And the other issue with supply that was faced was the fact that, you know, an institution will often supply less than what is needed simply to gain extra funding uh, because effectively command economies are just throw money at the problem and 
it was an interesting text. I think it does give an important analysis of command economies. Uh, I can't mm-hmm. think of any current criticisms right now um, because I've only read only a, only a fraction of it, but there's definitely some in there because you know the Austrian school. I don't particularly identify with them. I think they're a bit they're a bit extreme sometimes, but it was certainly interesting. I think I think Mises is phenomenal. I think Mises is is amazing, and I think mm. that I want to relate much of his work to the rather sort of beautiful and solemn thing that Charvak said in, in relation to, to the innate nature of humankind. I think that if anything, uh, you know, Mises made strides uh, in his other works as well that he, he conducted a, a similar time to, to that particular piece of work uh, that in many ways gave economics the sensitivity to human irrationality, human approach uh, that it does today. Uh, so irrational consumer behavior was in many ways uh, revolutionized or, or encouraged as, as an economic topic of study uh, as a product of, uh, of of Mises's work. And I think that relating to that or relating to the whole free market and command economy situation, it is fundamentally as human nature, whether it be sort of rational or irrational, uh, that is at, at the heart and soul of, of whatever economic structure expresses it. Yes. So keeping with uh, our little sort of obsession with the Austrian economists, the Austrian School of Economics, let's move on to Joseph Schumpeter. Joseph Schumpeter in many ways sort of operated a similar time uh, to, uh, to Friedrich Hayek, so from 1883 to 1950. And a lot of what his work did, I find particularly fascinating because it wasn't the typical Austrian, you know, in- exclusive uh, or, or almost independent uh, way of approaching free market economics. But in many ways, much of his sort of advocation of free market economics was due to the fact that he he, he studied Karl Marx extensively. So he wrote a book in Capitalism, uh, Socialism and Democracy, uh, which I believe he wrote in 1942. Uh, and he, he developed this concept of, of, of Schumpeter's Gale, also more commonly known as the, the process of creative destruction. Uh, and in many ways, what he said was the fact that monopolistic control, and if you consider what monopolistic control is, it is it's almost the, the furthest end of the spectrum of, of free market e- economics, where you've ultimately given power to the firm, power to the corporations. Uh, and what he reasoned was, was that with this whole idea of, of giving power to monopolies, what you're ultimately doing is that you're, you're creating a situation, or almost you're incubating uh, innovation in such, a, in such a way where the changes that do take place, where the revolutions that do manage to, to almost hit the, top of, uh, hit the top of the oligarchical ladder, uh, are almost fundamental changes as opposed to superficial ones. Uh, say if, I don't know, there's a monopoly of railway tracks, which which I do believe uh, it does exist in many countries today. UK for definite. Absolutely. You know, National Rail, they have a they have a huge control over it. Uh, and I think that, you know, what what led to the or what was the biggest opposition to those monopolies? It was the invention of the it was the invention of the engine, the car engine, the vehicle. So you can see that it is ultimately these fundamental changes, creative destruction, uh, that in many ways allows one to move further, allows one to revolutionize. And I think that Schumpeter said that that sort of situation, again, incubating innovation in such a way is only ever possible in a free market situation. He related this to Marxian economic theory, uh, which itself, I believe, referred more broadly to the linked processes of the accumulation and annihilation of wealth under capitalism. Uh, So, I mean, according to Schumpeter himself, the gale of creative destruction 
describes the process of industrial mutation that continuously revolutionizes the economic structure from within. And this is what the powerful thing that he said was. It incessantly destroys the old one, incessantly creates the new one. And I think that that's at the heart of it. And it's been, you know, developed upon by, I think, the German sociologist Werner Sombart. I think he wrote in his book, Krieg und Kapitalismus, uh, War and Capitalism. Um, he wrote that, you know, not only that capitalism destroys and reconfigures previous economic orders, but also it, it's, it ceaselessly devalues existing wealth. So in many ways, Schumpeter's work itself has also been refuted. Uh, and I think that that's very much at the heart of, of, of economics itself, right? And this, this argument that we have today, free market versus command economies, it's this constant to and fro of both authoritarianism and libertarianism largely uh, that gives way to perhaps one of the most oldest and most fundamental economic arguments of all time. Let's use a live example, for example. Uh, one of the most common examples of this would be the famous phrase that automation is stealing our jobs, right? Um, this would be an example of industrial mutation. Something new has arised that is destroying the old way of doing things. So there are many implications to this. For example, people are losing their jobs, right? Uh, because of unemployment, certain things will change and people are affected. But this concept of the old replaces the new is only possible within a capitalistic system. And this is the only way for improvement and growth, which again ties back into what we, we talked about earlier with capitalism making use of the innate human desire for growth and expansion. So um, I think he was really able to uh, catch this point and explain it in a more economic sense with this uh, old replacing the new. Yeah, I would like to actually critique Schumpeter to an extent. So obviously his theory of creative destruction, I think for the majority of things, it does actually make a lot of sense. Like capitalism will you know, create the new and destroy the old through competition. But I would ultimately say, you know, look at command economy, the USSR, like they beat the US in a space race. I think that shows, you know, greater innovation there in era command economy. And I'd also argue, you know, uh, so for those who don't come from the UK in the 80s and the 90s, the UK went for a lot of privatization. And so coal was privatized, oil was, energy wasn't, railways were. And I'd like to focus on railways quickly. And so in the 90s, we had a prime minister called John Major, and what he did was he continued what Thatcher was doing, and he privatized railways. And to be quite honest, I think it was done pretty poorly. Like if you look at railways, they're not innovating anything new. Uh, and to be honest, what's happened is basically these companies have controls of certain areas of railway, and they don't innovate. Like it's, it's absolute shambles, I believe, personally. But I think that's also down to a lot of regulation regarding railways. So maybe I'm a bit incorrect there, but I think that's all I'm going to say about Schumpeter. It, you know, it's slightly in response to what you said about the USSR earlier on in that point. I think that much more crucially, human nature sinks through. Human nature pervades. You can't run away from the fact that people are there for their own gain. People are incessantly trying to expand themselves, incessantly trying to be something greater. And I think that in many ways, the innovation that occurred in that period, you know, throughout the USSR was ultimately in desire for, for the USSR to expand itself. Human nature sunk through. And I think that in trying to expand, in trying to be greater, bigger, better than, in, in that case, the USA, uh, I think that was in many ways the driving force behind 
uh, the innovation that occurred then. And I think that if anything, capitalism just ex- just allows almost a little man to express that as well. Um, whereas in, in perhaps in the USSR, it was only the, the people at the top, the oligarchy, that was able to express this in, incessant strife for more. Capitalism allows everyone to do that. It allows everyone uh, to ultimately rejoice in the fact that they want more and, and, and they are fundamentally driven for it. I know looking at the Soviet leaders, I know um, I was listening to a podcast the other day about uh, Nikita Khrushchev and he only originated from a very poor background and he did get to the top and he did, you know, enjoy a very good life. And I think there is certainly potential to achieve in a command economy. I think there's that, that is to be said, but I think maybe capitalism is more effective. So now we're going to discuss the economic systems themselves in a more practical uh, sense. Let's talk about how they were implemented. So as we said before, pure communism has never been tried. Um, It's always been socialism that has always leaned heavily towards communism. So let's talk a little bit about the history of uh, communism in the USSR and compare it to why China was successful um, and why the the USSR failed. So essentially... uh, the Tsarist Empire was essentially Russia's first major uh, class or first major empire, right? It was from this that the educated higher class people were vying for communism, right? So I'd like to make the point that the majority of Russia did not want to adopt communism at the point at that point, right? So when this happened, uh, right after World War One, or perhaps I'd say this is what ended the First World War for Russia was the October Revolution, right? Um, the Bolshevik Party, led by everyone's favorite Lenin, uh, became the Communist Party. And at this point, um, Lenin established essentially a dictatorship over the economy and over Russia. And he set a very strict regime for expansion, right? One of the reasons the USSR survived for as long as it did is because um, it was constantly expanding and it was constantly acquiring new sources of growth and resources and money. So they were never short of growth potential until the very end when they could no longer continue expanding, right? That combined with uh, almost an iron grip on the means of production essentially just gave them full freedom to do whatever they wish. The government, the people couldn't really do anything. So that was the reason the USSR survived as long as it did. But the reason it failed was because the majority did not want communism because as Marx has always preached, communism is for the proletariat, right? So if the people were unwilling to practice this, they had no chance of working. The difference with China is the majority of the working class people wanted communism, and they're the ones who caused the social uprising in in Chinese history. And I think that's why uh, China really succeeded in bringing communism to the next stage, because uh, their nationalistic ideology is the glue that holds together China, right? There was no such ideology in Russia due to the fact that they have many, many ethnic groups. So they could, they could never agree on a certain thing, to which people were deeply divided on basically any major issue, which is what caused communism to fail, really, in the USSR. I think the key point this boils down to is unity. The, the the state or the, the country needs unity for something like communism that goes so very against human nature to succeed. So that, I think, is the crux of the issue with communism being practiced in the modern world. So, yeah, that's essentially it for communism. And since everything is run by the government, it's, it's highly inefficient. 
Uh, so I think with regard to the USSR, I think to an extent it did succeed in some areas. Like I know um, I was watching some videos over the past, I've been watching them for quite a while, where effectively Russians actually look back to the USSR with quite a lot of pride. And I think a lot of them are very proud of it. You know, they had free healthcare. There was a very large immunization program and a lot of them got free education where you work for the government and in return you got free education. And I think, to be honest, I think the USSR, it mainly didn't succeed due to liberalization and also a lot of other countries that were formerly part of it just not wanting to be part of it. They just wanted to leave. They wanted their own sovereignty. And I'm sure we'll discuss this more in another episode, but I think that's all I'm going to say there. And I think that I have to agree with you, Chavak. You know, pure communism has never been implemented. But I think it's because it doesn't exist beyond the theoretical space of between our two ears, essentially. I think that having that degree of unity, as you say, I, I, I wouldn't say it's possible. I wouldn't say it's, it's possible to, to assert a, a homogeneity amongst a population where fundamentally the human condition drives for one's liberation through the fact that it, we, are, we are diverse. You know, we are diverse. We are diverse as a people. I don't think that there will ever be a, a circumstance, whether that be for an ethnic basis, an ideological basis, you know, or, or whether that be, you know, in, in some countries, I guess it's for a religious basis. I don't think there would ever be that sense of homogeneity that would allow ever uh, for a communist sort of state to, to exist in the first place. I think that variation, whether that be environmental or genetic, would, would give in way to that. And I think that as much as we love economics, as much as we uh, adore economics as, as, as being almost the, the, the basis of our civilized existence of today, I think that there's a force that the economics simply can't beat or withhold, and that's the force of nature. Uh, people are fundamentally different. And how do we contain that within one set system uh, where, you know, apparently one party is, uh, is appealing to the interests of all? Uh, I, I don't believe that such a, such a system can ever exist. Because capitalism places a lot of emphasis on individuality, right? It prizes the individual. It says the individual decides what he wants and what he gets, right? There's a common saying that the demand of today is the supply of tomorrow, right? With, in a communist system, it is not like that. The government decides what you get and when you get it. In a capitalist system, you get to decide what you want and when you want it, right? So the beauty of capitalism is that it allows for privatization, right? So in a private corporation, it's essentially uh, natural selection, I should say. Uh, in an environment you know, with animals, the most fit for that environment will be able to pass on its genes and grow and you know, so on and so forth. With, with ca capitalism, it's much the same behavior with firms. Only the most efficient firms will survive, right? Otherwise, they will be outcompeted and they'll have to shut down. So when there's this competitive do-or-die environment, firms will obviously prioritize maximum efficiency, right? Because they're going to want to produce as much as possible for as little money as possible and of the highest quality that they can do, right? So when every single firm does this, it creates this environment that, that's just so full of these goods that are goods for the lowest price and of the highest quality. And this creates a very... Uh, efficient system for people to save money, essentially, right? Except in the US, they have a culture of con continuously purchasing more and more. But in, in a place like India, for example, where people still have a little bit of a more conservative mentality, um, capitalism allows for them to be very efficient with their money because they can purchase the highest quality goods at the lowest possible price. So that's that point. And I want to talk about one of Adam Smith's, you know, one of his biggest ideologies, uh, which is specialization, right? This is what, this is one of the 
core arguments for why capitalism is so much better than communism or why it's so efficient, right? So when a single party has to take care of every facet of, of production, right? Everything from land to, to electronics, to manufacturing, to everything, it's bound to get overwhelmed. The government in a communist system, it would be the government. And obviously the government, uh, because of its bureaucratic nature, cannot do this to in a very efficient manner. So um, I'll get, uh, just to illustrate this, here's a small example. If we take a specific smartphone company such as Samsung, right? To keep it simple, let's, uh, Samsung's main production is smartphones, right? That's their main source of revenue. That's their main investment. That's their main everything. They only produce smartphones and goods related to smartphones. Obviously, they produce things like refrigerators and, uh, and microwaves and things, but their main focus is on smartphones, yes? So when a company is focusing only on one thing, they can divert all of their resources to only that. They can find the best possible permutation for their resources, the most efficient resources, the resource allocation, right? So when the specialization occurs, you get the most efficient use of resources that in a sense also helps the environment because the company makes the most out of as little resources as they can use. So this allows for highly specialized niches of industry that uh, produce certain goods that no other industry can produce in a communist setting. This would not be possible because the government would have to take care of everything and they'd essentially have to make generalized uh, funding or generalized statements about industries as a whole instead of these specific markets, right? If a government had to take care of smartphone production plus housing plus investment into the stock market or something, I don't know, plus everything together, it would not be feasible. It would not be a realistic system. It's only because capitalism allows for such specialization and such uh, individuality that it has flourished. It essentially I like to think of it as the, as the economic manifestation of human nature. It allows the firms to explore a single niche, niche and just become super specialized into that single niche and become so efficient that they essentially provide the best quality at the lowest price. I keep emphasizing this because this is what makes capitalism so great. And it is, again, this is what um, we were talking about with... Uh, Joshua Schumpeter, right? He talked about the old uh, getting replaced by the new. When they go into these specialized niches, um, new companies also enter the market and they enter with new technology, new methods of production, new everything, and they can kick out the older competition who can't adapt. So I think that is the basis for why capitalism has been so successful. It allows for specialization and this allows for the variety of goods. It allows people to make their own decisions. It allows for basically freedom in in in, in every sense of the word. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Do you guys have anything to add on? Individuality, sovereignty, autonomy is at the basis of every or every functioning economic system. Whether that whether we look look at it perhaps through a more political scope, say through democracy, or whether we look at it through an economic scope with this whole free market versus a command economy argument that we're having here. I think that individuality is at the root of everything. But something that I want to perhaps encourage, uh, you know, perhaps a little conversational discussion around is, is, is to what degree is, is sovereignty, to what degree is autonomy eroded within the capitalism system as well, you know, because uh, I know that con consumer sovereignty is, is a huge argument. 
to what degree is the consumer ultimately able to decide what they want, especially when you've got the likes of oligopolists, you've got the likes of monopolists that are able to, whether that be artificially through through advertisements or whether that be um, perhaps more naturally through through only supplying what what greatest demand there is of uh, what perhaps niches can't accommodate to you know what to what degree is that consumer sovereignty ubiquitous within a system like this to what degree is the consumer able to decide what they want in a system where everyone's just after their own gain i think with regards to consumer sovereignty i think you know capitalism does offer i think personally it does offer a better alternative looking at the evidence from history however i do believe that individualism uh, is that really properly achieved through capitalism? Like, if you look at currently with our modern world, you have people working in a warehouse, you know, basically tr they're treated awfully. And this is for hours upon hours in a day. And to what extent is that individuality? Like, how can working in a warehouse 12 hours a day without basic employment rights to an extent be considered, you know, a good sense of individuality? Uh, so I think there needs to be some kind of, you know, discussion around that at some point. All right. So this is what I wanted to discuss next. It's the controversial facets of each of the systems, right? So since we're on the topic of capitalism, let's continue with that. So as you guys have said, obviously, uh, this is one of the downsides to capitalism, right? It's essentially using legal slave labor. If you look at things like Amazon or Apple producing in China, it's essentially slave labor. I think we can all agree on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> because of... <laughs> because of their main incentive of profit maximization right uh, they want to minimize costs and increase production as much as they want as much as possible they will tend to underpay workers which is uh, which is a downside but it's because of this okay i'm gonna okay at the risk of sounding conceited i'm gonna say it's because of this that um we are able to enjoy such luxury today it's because of this mentality that we're able to enjoy luxury i'm not condoning this act, the behavior, but I'm just saying that that plays a large part in the way we live. Um, and I don't think it's within our power to change it anytime soon because of uh, how powerful uh, lobbies have gotten in countries, especially like America and, and many in Europe, um, where the lobbies essentially have the government in their pocket, though that's a political discussion more than an economic one. Um, but moving on from that point, uh, another thing arises, right? There is a lack of a necessity, lack of necessary things um, in a capitalist economy. For example, in America, um, we can look at the medical industry, right? Um, there is very little regulation in the medical industry, right? It's healthcare is super expensive. Uh, it's it's a very messed up system, right? Insulin production costs less than seven dollars, but it a single vial can sell for up to two fifty dollars, right? And insulin is obviously a very vital thing for people who have diabetes and they can't survive without it. And this leads to a lot of people dying because they can't afford the insulin. So this is this is a, an issue with the government leaving everything up to the free market when everything is a profit-oriented system. When you have something as inelastic as as, 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 the, as medicine, because it's something they can't live without, they're willing to pay as much as possible, the private sector will take advantage of this and they will put prices as high as they possibly can just to... I guess you can say milk as much money as possible out of the citizens. Um, so that's one of the key issues with capitalism. But there's a very easy solution to this, although it, it isn't easy, but it's been tried and tested and proven in many Scandinavian and even in, in the UK with the NHS. Um, you can you can provide government uh, government government uh, funded healthcare and transport and basically everything, right? So with the NHS, I believe you guys have socialized healthcare, healthcare, right? So it's yeah. cheap, it's affordable, exactly. and 
you can get very good healthcare for a very cheap price um, comparatively to the US. I mean, same thing in Scandinavia, like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, all those places, it's pretty much the same, right? So but then again, the issue here arrives um, in a developing country like India or Brazil or, you know, et cetera, is socialized healthcare really viable? Because I can tell you for a fact that municipal hospitals in India are not able to compete with the private private sector in healthcare, right? I'm pretty sure the NHS can compete with any private sector hospital in the in, in the UK, right? Yeah, to an extent they can compete. Like I know um you can get private healthcare in the UK and it does tend to be better quality, but that is because you are paying more. But the NHS definitely does compete and the vast majority of people do use it and it is very effective. Yeah, I'd say it's not even in terms of the quality of the product as well. In many cases, it just becomes a, a case of waiting time, really, right? Yeah, I think I'd agree with that, yeah. I think regulation generally prevents these forms of sort of market failure from taking place. but um... Yeah, so regulation plus engaging in you know government-provided services would be the solution. But in a country like the US, where I guess the entire country, you can look at it as a huge firm that encompasses a bunch of... Uh, facets of production, they really just don't care about regulation or civility. They just want the money. And the US government really encourages that behavior. And that's, I guess, why they're the most powerful economy in the world, or you know, they used to, which is now declining. But yeah, that's that for capitalism. Anything you guys want to add? I think capitalism, capitalism, the heart of it is market failure. Market failure, whether that be through externalities, the provision of public goods, information gaps, Market failures are, are, are everything in capitalism. And to what extent can the government provide a, a valid refutation or solution to that? The government fails too. Uh, and I think that it's all about striking this balance, striking this, this very critical um, balance between this dichotomy. How effective can a government be in providing and enforcing certain policies in a situation where both market failure and government failure are equally viable uh, and equally as destructive? That's always going to be an issue with capitalism, and um, I don't think there's much we can do about it at this point, unless a revolutionary new theory comes up or a revolutionary new practice. I don't think there's much we can do about that simply because that's the nature of things at this point, right? Now let's look at controversial topics within communism, right? So obviously the biggest point here would be the lack of freedom. So people don't don't get to decide what they want, right? Even though communism preaches equality for all and, you know, says the people have the power, uh, that's really not the case because the people can't decide anything for themselves and the government just spoon feeds them everything. And if they say no, they're taken out as we've seen with Stalin and, and you know, his comrades per se. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it for communism. It's the lack of freedom. And again, uh, it lacks in almost every facet that communism, uh, that capitalism, you know, excels in this topic of specialization. It can't do so. And as a result of which people have less to choose from. Obviously, China is a very specific and different case that we can't exactly use for this discussion because they implement communism, or I should say socialism in a very different manner. But aside from China, in a theoretical perspective, we can't exactly expect that level of specialization or that variety of goods in a communist economy. I think with communism, the lack of freedom, I think, as we mentioned before, you know, communism hasn't really been properly tried. Like, that, for example, I think Marx specifically said communism should take place in an industrial era economy. And the fact is, Russian was completely agrarian before 
the rise of you know communist uh, their proposed version of communism but maybe if another communist leader rises there could be you know a different version maybe there would be freedom for the people maybe people would have a very high quality of life whether they are perceived to be free i think that is something that i'll definitely be interested in seeing i think that in terms of communism's faults i think that it, it goes much deeper than ideology in certain extent i think it goes up to a point where lack of freedom it's collapse it, inefficiency is inevitable dare i get into all sorts of marginal cost curves now but i think that both allocative efficiency um both productive efficiency and also likes of x inefficiency and uh, dynamic and static sort of efficiencies which are all different sort of buzzwords that i recommend everyone at home to to look into uh i think that you know they're mathematically uh inevitable uh, and I think that that is, in many ways, gives way to the fact that, or, or at least reasons my belief that I think that whether or not it has been tried or not in its truest form or its truest extent, I think that a communist system uh, simply wouldn't be viable, simply wouldn't be viable unless we rewrite who we are, uh, not only as economic agents, but as people, human beings uh, and animals. I disagree with that to a certain extent. Um, I'd like to bring up a point from Karl Marx. He said that communism should only be implemented once capitalism has reached its peak, right? Um, and I think certain countries are close to this phase where communism could, in theory, work if implemented in a certain manner, right? Mm. I know that's a lot of ifs and buts, but uh, that's the nature of things. So look at somewhere like Sweden. Um, they have a very export-based economy, right? Their main export is, I'm pretty sure it's cars which, you know, is a very industrial setting. And they have very, very efficient healthcare and transport and, and education and essentially everything essential, right? If communism were to be implemented in this setting, there is a good chance that it could work. But there is a, there is a very strong chance that it would not work too, as with all things, because... Again, that's the nature of things. I'm saying that a lot today, but I don't know what else to say in regards to that. I think that, you know, what? who, who is to decide when capitalism has, has hit this so-called peak? You know, whether you want to quote Malthus's work, that there is some sort of demise to our economic system, to capitalism, or whether you want to put, you know, Bozerup's work, which I think we explored, you know, briefly last podcast. I think that there is no end. There is no end to this incessant strife for more. And I think that with that, this, this whole question of there being a peak to capitalism is something that I think is, is dubious and perhaps questionable at most. Yeah, I think that concludes the podcast. So just a, a brief summary. First, we talked about a little bit of the history and the minds behind communism and capitalism. So, you know, Adam Smith, Hayek, and Mises, and uh, Joseph, Joseph Trumpeter. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the implementation of these systems and why it worked and why it failed and what could have been done to make them work. And yeah, that's... That is the podcast. So next, uh, next month, we are uploading another version of this podcast. I might next month might be, it'll be in the near future. And we're going to do a part two to this episode because we've got some interesting stories and we're going to go into slightly more detail. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all the support that you've been given. And we'll see you next time we record. So goodbye. <laughs>